Uh, we're, we're in the middle of a series right now, and actually we're not in the middle, we're at the very end. Today is the last, uh, last Sunday in our Christ and Culture series, and then next week we're going to be returning to our series in the Gospel of Mark. I told you at the beginning of the year like, uh, that Gospel of Mark is going to be our, our sweet potato chili, and there's an illustration there, a story I told at that time. It's going to be our, our kibble. It's, it's what we eat, our regular diet throughout the year. So we're returning back to the Gospel of Mark, but we've been in this series that I hope has been a blessing to you called Christ and Culture, and we've been trying to lay a biblical foundation for some of the more controversial issues in our culture today. Not all of them, certainly, but a few of them, and some of the most uh, controversial. And we've tried to bring the gospel to bear upon those issues. And today we're going to be talking about what it means to like, live your life in such a way that you share your faith in a, in a culture that is, if we're honest, at times hostile to faith of any sort. Not just the Christian faith, but definitely the Christian faith as well. How do you bear witness to Jesus in a culture, in a place, in a time that is so hostile, and it feels like hostility, uh, to faith? How do we do that? And some of the answers I think we're going to see today are somewhat counterintuitive, but incredibly important nonetheless. Today I want to read to us from John 13 and then also John 17. Um, and at the end of the reading, would you join with me in saying thanks be to God as, as we read? A new commandment, John, the Gospel of John says, and these are Jesus' words, a new, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then later, in the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples before he goes to the cross, in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you love them, even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today, we're talking about sharing our faith in a hostile culture, and this is a subject, if we're honest, this idea of sharing your faith uh, classically what we would call evangelism, uh, makes some of us very, very nervous. Can we be honest about that? And, and when it gets to the particulars, when we start saying, like, this is what we're going to do about sharing our faith, we can get very, very nervous. And, and it feels anxious, especially because of the fact of what I just mentioned earlier, that sharing our faith in this cultural context is difficult. It feels difficult. And we know that God has called us to be lights in the world and that sharing the gospel, of course, and sharing the hope that is within us is a very important part of our calling as followers of Jesus, but it also can become challenging, and many of us struggle. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary from Great Britain who spent 40 years working in India uh, during the 20th century, and when Newbegin returned to his home in the United Kingdom, he was shocked to find that Europe had become every bit the mission field that he had just left in India. So he leaves the United Kingdom, 
uh, to go to India and was sent by the church to go to India and spent 40 years there. And, and back then, uh, travel was much more difficult. Missionaries were uh, not able to return home for rest like we encourage missionaries to do today, every two to three years to come and to spend lengthy amounts of time. Uh, but that just doesn't ha- didn't happen back then. And so when he was gone 40 years, he probably was gone much of those 40 years. And when he returned, he found that the United Kingdom was no longer Christendom, if it had ever been. And what I mean by Christendom, and it's, that's where the cultural assumptions of a, of a country or a nation or a culture so largely overlap with Christianity that it feels as if the culture and the church are operating together. And when he left, when he left the United Kingdom, it felt to him like Christendom, right? But when he returned 40 years later to the United Kingdom, it absolutely did no longer felt that way. It felt to him like a mission field, as much a mission field as India felt like a mission field. But the problem was that the church according to Newbegin, had not responded to that fact and that reality. That the church, on the one hand, part of the church had just been co-opted by the secular humanism that was reigning in that culture at that time and still remains in Europe. At least a mass majority of the church had just co-opted into their own theology uh, secular humanism. But the other part that was still orthodox and believing and so forth was still taking a stance that looked exactly the same before he left. And he was saying, this is all wrong. Everything's changed and the church doesn't realize it. Now, there are parts of the United States that are still very church. I was just in one. Chattanooga, Tennessee <laughs> is the most churched city in the United States. Google it. It's, this is where both of my sons uh, are attending college at Covenant College. Lookout Mountain, Georgia overlooks Chattanooga, Tennessee. And as I meet students, and it is a Christian school and so forth, but I was meet, meeting young men on my son's floor as he's moving in as a freshman onto his dorm floor, and we're chatting. And I said, so where did you grow up? And this kid says, I'm from Chattanooga. And he's this tall young man and just a great kid, and he's a fellow freshman. He's introduced himself. I grew up in Chattanooga. So we're joking, like, oh, man, it must be a real stretch for you to go to Covenant College. This must be really hard for you, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, well. Anyway, so, and then he says, uh, he says yeah, I know all the all the great things about Chattanooga and I can share with Carter and I can tell him about it. I know all the great fun things and I know all the great churches. I can tell him about all the great churches. I'm just thinking, wow. <laughs> you know, only in at Covenant College and only at Chattanooga, Tennessee is this kid, this freshman in college, the, one of the primary things that's on his mind is telling my son about all the great churches. And as a dad, I was very, very excited for that reality, as you can imagine. But the reality is, if we were missionaries and we were removed from the United States for the last 40 years in such a way as Newbigin was, meaning like we had no real contact with the United States, and that's impossible now because of technology, obviously. No matter where you are in the world, you would be up to speed that things are changing. But if we had been removed for the last 40, 60, 80 years from the United States with no contact, and then we returned like Newbigin returned, we would have the exact same experience, would we not? And I think many of us believe that there was a day and an age in the United States where it truly was Christendom. I don't hold the view that the United States was ever an utterly Christian nation. So that's not what I'm saying. But there was a day and an age where for many people, not all, certainly not all, it felt like the cultural assumptions of the United States and the cultural assumptions of the church had so much overlap that we 
many of us felt very much at home within our culture to say, we are at peace as Christians in this nation. So some Christians who once felt at ease in the United States as followers of Jesus now feel very uneasy. And this is moving many people to fear as a primary motivator. And this is a concern for me. Because fear as a motivation is a horrible motivation. And fear leads us to do all kinds of things in action, in life, that are obviously almost always destructive. I mean, there are times when fear is a good thing. When you're hiking and there's a bear, <laughs> fear's good, okay? That's good. But to be motivated in life, especially as a follower of Jesus, over and against faith in Christ and who he is, this is a destructive motivation. Yet what I see, and, and this is part of the reason we've been doing this series, is as a culture, many followers of Jesus in this culture are feeling the tension to such a degree and beginning to be driven by fear and even anger and these are not good motivations. C.S. Lewis says in a book that I cannot recommend enough, it's called The Weight of Glory, and it's a, it's a series of lectures and, and talks that C.S. Lewis gave. One of them was called The Weight of Glory, and the book is called The Weight of Glory. And he said this, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues were, 19 of them would reply unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied love. Love. We just said in one of our confessions that we're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is, the, this is the ethic that followers of Jesus must have. This is our calling. This is what must drive us and motivate us. Faith in Christ who then produces in us love. Amen? Love. Love for God and love for our neighbor, not fear. So what are we to do? And in a, in a message where we're talking about what are we to do, sharing our faith in a hostile culture, what are we to do, today is going to be somewhat counterintuitive because I'm going to tell you, tell you very little on what to do, but I'm going to tell you very much on who to be. Because to me, I think that's the primary thing. Who we are as a people is as critical, far more critical than how we go about the particulars. And we're going to get into some practical realities, but who we are and the ethos that we have must precede what we do if we will see an effective witness given to Jesus Christ in this culture. And the first thing that I want us to say, see and, say, and talk about is this, how to share your faith in a hostile culture. If we're going to share our faith in a hostile culture, we have to love the broken church. We have to love the broken church. Many people today are utterly deconstructing their faith and are leaving faith altogether. We know this. We've talked about it. We're seeing it. We read about it. It started with just um, everyday folks leaving churches, denying their faith, some, not all. But then it's picked up steam, and it's, it's been bloggers and pastors and church leaders and authors People are leaving their church, some altogether, but not everyone that's leaving the church is scrapping their faith, not all. Researcher George Barna refers to this group as revolutionaries, and he warns us to not conclude that all of them are leaving the church because they don't want God in their life. Scott Sauls, I've been commending this church or this book to you. It's called Jesus Outside the Lines that he wrote, and he, he says this, people 
uh, many people like this, I've met uh, many people like this, and their feedback about the local church is strikingly consistent, and their disenchantment is often legitimate. Instead of going to church, they are eager to be the church. Instead of being a face in the crowd, they're eager to be a known and needed member of the community. And many times people don't feel that, and so they're leaving and going into home churches or just small groups and trying to find and build community that way. Other people are not necessarily denying their faith, but they're leaving churches because of church hurt, church wounding. And many of you have had that experience. Um, leadership in, in churches that have been uh, authoritative or have been unloving or unkind or even abusive. And that's left a mark on many people, and they no longer trust the church, and they're leaving also, because the church, and this is just, I want to be careful in the way I describe this, but I think it's important. The church, in its response and its desire to bear witness to Jesus in a, to a broken and lost world, and I think what started as good desire to say we must reach out to a lost world, has so prioritized production and entertainment and experience in, in churches to such a degree that that is having a negative effect as well. We live our lives in so much in entertainment experiences, right, through screens. And so when a pastor only shows up in a place on a screen, and, and hear me, please hear me, some of my favorite pastors in the United States have chosen to use this model where there are multiple sites and, and they preach through a screen. So I am... I don't hate these brothers, and, I, and some of them are my favorite pastors, so please hear me. But I just wonder if, if because of the high need for production and, and the, the emphasis on excellence in production, and in a desire to, to reach people, we haven't begun to see that what we're doing is creating just another entertainment experience for people. And that if a pastor only shows up on a screen, the next step is for me to say, why can't I just watch him on a screen? And why can't I just listen to the best music I like anyway on radio or on, on Spotify anyway and just sit at home with a few people that I kind of like and we just have this experience together in our pajamas? I mean, this sounds great. And if the church is nothing more than an entertainment experience, and I've never, ever heard any pastor say that, trust me, but the implications still there are there in the way that we're doing church. I've never met a pastor that says, yeah, church is just an entertainment experience. But can we admit that at times, maybe even at New Valley, it just becomes another entertainment experience? But what if the church isn't just an event or an experience, but a people? That's what church is. Church is the people of God. It's not an experience. It includes experiences that are even things that we're called to. We are called to worship together as bodies of Christ, the body of Christ. We're called to live in community. There's nothing wrong with planning experiences. There's nothing wrong with having small groups and worship and public worship. In fact, I believe this is critical. But at the same time, if the church is simply an experience, we shouldn't be surprised that people are just opting for experiences in a highly privatized, individualistic way. 
Scott Sauls writes this in the same book. Would Jesus be in favor of a churchless Christianity? The local church is God's idea, he writes. The Bible knows nothing of Christians who relate to God as isolated individuals or see the local church as optional to their faith experience. As St. Cyprian once said, one cannot have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, and there's so much more in this context I'd love to get into today, which we can't, but he says, now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're a body. And all of us, every single one of us that's in Christ through faith, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. And through the Spirit of God, you are members of the body of Christ. And when we have faith in Jesus, we become members of that body. The Christians are members of the invisible church. If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been born of God's Spirit, you are a member of God's church, whether you've technically joined a local church or not. You are. We call that the Holy Catholic Church. Hear me now. That's not the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal. There is one true universal church, and it is every believer that's ever trusted in Christ, whether they've already passed away or whether they're living today or will be born 10 years from now, they are a member of the universal church because of one body that Christ is creating and he promised he would create and that the gates of hell will never prevail against. Amen? Amen. You're a member of the body of Christ, the holy Catholic church, through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And as such, that should be lived out in real life, in reality. As believers, Paul constantly says in his letters, you're in Christ, you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are members of a body. We are members of a family. I am a son of God, not because I'm good, but because Jesus is good. You're a son or a daughter of God because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus. And, and therefore, everyone else who's ever trusted in Christ is your sister or your brother or your father in the faith or your mother in the faith. And healthy churches have people, men and women, who are called into faith, called into membership, and God equips people for the body like pastors and deacons and elders to lead local churches. And if they're godly and equipped, they should do so in a manner that is loving and patient and truthful and challenging. They should be loving and teaching and protecting and building up the body of Christ and not destroying her. But the truth is, as a pastor, I have to say and repent, pastors have hurt people, and maybe you're one of them. Priests have hurt people, churches, bishops, councils. We've, we've hurt people as leaders in the body of Christ, and we bear responsibility for those things. And I humbly ask as a pastor, one of many, would you forgive us for the ways in which our authority has been misused? But instead of rejecting what God has created, in spite of the abuses, would you accept what Jesus has created, which is one family, one body, and to not isolate yourself from the church? 
Those of you who are are kind of biblical scholars, if I said, give me one chapter that best illustrates the early church in the Bible, what would it be? Acts 2. Many of you said Acts 2, right? That is the passage we always go to because it's the most beautiful example we have of a local church in the New Testament. And it's, it's a glorious account of what a church can look like. The, the early church in Acts 2, and it's the very first church that springs up in Jerusalem right after the resurrection and Pentecost with the Holy Spirit poured out on all believers, and the apostles are there, and Peter preaches, and thousands are added, and they're baptized, and they're gathering together. It's a mega church right away, by the way. It's a large church. There are thousands of people, but they're breaking up into one another's homes, and they're sharing all things in common. If anyone had need, they sold property or goods and, and gave so that that need was met. Uh, They broke bread. They shared God's word together, and it was beautiful. But the truth is, that's not the only account of the early church that we have. That's one, and it's beautiful. But we also have an account of other, many other parts of the early church, including uh, the church in Corinth. And that church was a mess. And the Apostle Paul planted that church, and we have 1 Corinthians 13 because of how messed up this early church was. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a love poem created for weddings, (laughs) but that's about the only place we talk about it. Love is patient and love is kind, and and these things will never really happen in your marriage, but let's talk about it. Like, it never is envious, and it's never this, and we're like, yes, yes, it's not going to happen because only Jesus is that, right? 1 Corinthians 13 isn't talking about like marriage, it's talking about a man, his name's Jesus, and that's what we're called into. And 1 Corinthians 13 is not a happy-go-lucky little poem, it's a, you guys are jerks, and you're called to be loving to one another. That's the truth, read it. He doesn't say jerks, but he might as well. (laughs) You're not loving one another. Some of, you've got rock star preaching, he says. Who cares if you don't love one another, he says. You've got an amazing praise band, tongues with voices like angels. But if you have not love, you have nothing, he says, and you are nothing. And he goes on, and he goes on, and he goes on. Without love, without love, without love, you have nothing, and you are nothing. It's only in love that anything matters. That's it. It's love. So Paul is saying, church, if you don't love one another, you have nothing, you're being nothing, you're you're not effective, no matter how successful you are, your programs, your teaching ministry, your, your music ministry, how many people come, none of it matters if you don't love one another and if you don't love a broken world. Scott Sauls, same book, why didn't Paul throw in the towel on the New Testament church? Paul looks at the broken local church and he envisions beauty. He looks at the sinful local church and envisions sainthood. He looks at the undesirable local church is to be overcome with her desire for flourishing. And Paul thinks about the local church as family, daughters, sons of God, which whom Jesus is well pleased, the bride of Christ to whom he has betrothed himself forever, sisters and brothers to one another, fellow heirs of the kingdom, family. We're called to love one another. And it's so vogue right now. It's so in fashion to just say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or I'm spiritual, but I don't. And I understand the heart of that. Like the gospel is not religion. It's relationship. I get all that. But what, what they're saying is, I want God, but I don't want church. I love Jesus, but Christians are too hard. 
I'm a pastor. I know how hard Christians are. <laughs> You're a Christian. You know what Goober's pastors are, right? It's hard. But Jesus doesn't say, eh, if it gets too difficult, don't worry about loving one another. It's a commandment. John 13, a new commandment I've given you. And it's in the context of Jesus, you know, washing his disciples' feet and showing them how much he loves them. They're like, oh, you can't do this. And he says, I must. And you must. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in the high priestly prayer, it keeps praying for our unity and saying, like, the world will come to me by faith and know that you and I, Father, are one if they are one. Make them one people. Help them to love one another. We know that we've been given the Great Commission. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've hung around church and you've read the Bible, if you know about Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We have a Great Commission, but we often forget, we don't really forget it, but we want to ignore it, the Great Commandment, which is to love one another. And I love how Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples if, what? You, you love one another. But we take that and say, yeah, they'll know we're disciples. But I think the great commandment is connected inextricably to the great commission that one of the ways, one of the primary ways that people come to follow Jesus is as we love one another. They'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. But I think it's more than that, especially as it relates to John 17, it's they will come to be disciples also if you love one another. And probably the opposite is also true. So friends, why on earth would anyone want to join Christ's family if it's filled with so much anger and hatred and division and lack of love for one another? <laughs> If we look more like the Jerry Springer show than a family that loves one another, that's an old reference. But like, you know, why would anyone want to join that? But Jesus says, love one another, love one another. And it's so in vogue to say, yeah, I, I love God, but I don't, I don't love the church. That just doesn't make sense biblically. For the people of God to say they don't love one another the reality is this, as our society increasingly pushes faith to the margins, and that's not slowing down. I don't see that slowing down. God is, is the Lord. He can do what he wants. Um, he's the sovereign one. I trust him. I beg him for nothing short of revival in our nation because that's what it would take to turn things around for God's people to humble themselves and to repent and to pray and for the Holy Spirit to just move. And, and God can do that. So far, we don't see indications in the United States or in the West of that happening. But thanks be to God, it is happening around the world in more unlikely places, in places where the gospel has not flourished in the past. Now it is in China. The gospel is flourishing. The Holy Spirit is, is moving in power in, in Central America, in South America, in, in, in impoverished places. The Holy Spirit is there powerfully at work and ministering in ways that we've not seen in a long time. But in the West, 
things are pretty quiet. And our, our society increasingly pushes faith to the margins. The truth is, fewer and fewer of the models that we've been using to get people to come to church through our entertainment experiences and through what people call the attractional model. Let's be attractive and let's invite people into church. That's going to work less and less and less. Our attractional models where we put on events and invite people in are working less and less and less. And you've got to know that's true. It's not going to keep working nearly as well. And I welcome it. I welcome it. And here's why. It's time for the church to be the church again. And that is the most beautiful thing we can do as the body of Christ, is be robustly the church. And I don't mean churchy necessarily, but being, being what the church, the New, the New Testament does envision in all its glory and even its brokenness, by being the church, shaped by the gospel, I believe is one of the most compelling things that we can do and be. Being the church that loves one another because of the gospel. Loving one another well is one of the most compelling things. And so church, I, if you want to see a hostile world come to know Jesus more and more, we must love the church. And the next part's harder. You must love a church. I mean, if you only love the church in theory, but you don't fellowship with other believers and, and find a place that you commit to and say, we're going to be family together, and, and th then what does that mean? And by the way, we do not think we are the church or the only church in town that, that people should come and commit to. This is, a, this is a great body of Christ, and there are many, many wonderful, beautiful examples of the body of Christ in Phoenix. And I'm so thankful to do ministry in Phoenix where the, the body of Christ is unified, and there are so many examples of beautiful churches. But we should love the church. We love the church in Phoenix. We love the church in Arizona. We love the church in the United States. We love the church around the world. We pray for the church, and we love a church. I'm going to commit to a local body of believers, and what's so compelling about it is that's not easy to do. If it were easy, it wouldn't be compelling, would it? You've got to love the church. You have to love a church. And next, we have to love the broken world. We've got to love the broken church and all of her, her difficulties and, and bruises and scrapes. We have to love the broken church. And of course, if we're going to be effective in bearing witness to Jesus in a hostile environment, we have to love the broken world, broken people. Well, how do you do that? First, back to who you are. You have to remember who you are. If you're going to love a broken world well, you have to remember who you are. And who you are is a broken, fallen, spiritual beggar. Someone who's a sinner who needed grace. But over time, Christians have a strong tendency to forget that we're sinners saved by grace. And instead, we begin to see ourselves more as slightly less sinful sinners saved by grace. I've never heard a Christian say, well, I don't have any sin in my life. You know, I'm fully righteous. I'm the one guy that just is. <laughs> but instead, what I see people is forgetting 
how profoundly lost they were and how profoundly lost they actually still are. And the way they define sin begins to be kind of like acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. Everything you struggle with is an unacceptable sin. Everything I kind of battle, greed and pride, and all, yeah, that's fine. There's no, Jesus really isn't ex- upset about that stuff. But like we have acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. We have like cultural sins. If you do that, you're out. Uh, my kind of sin, not so bad. And we don't see the impoverishment of our own souls and the depth of our own depravity and our own need of Jesus. And we begin to build sort of self-righteous systems where we're actually not that bad. Are we sinners? Yes, we're sinners, but we're slightly less sinful than a bunch of other people. And that seems like maybe a small difference to you, but it's not. It makes all the difference in the world, and it's a matter of life and death. It is the matter between life and death. It's the matter between being someone who's legitimately looking to Christ by faith and someone who's becoming a Pharisee, whose soul is in peril. The slippery slope of becoming a Pharisee. And friends, the more driven by fear that you are as everything is shifting and changing around us in our culture, the more likely you are to become a Pharisee. The more you let your heart get angry by all the shifting and all the cultural shifts and changes and people's sins and morality being changed, and all that's true and all that's a fearful thing, but the, the more you're driven by fear, the more likely you are to become angry and the more likely you are to fall into the slippery slope of the pharisaical heart. But we can remember who we are. Jesus warned a Pharisee who thought he was more righteous than a prostitute. In Luke 7, he just said this, I tell you, this prostitute's sins are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. When we love little, we just need a little forgiveness. We love little when we see ourselves as forgiven little. I'm a sinner, but I'm a little sinner. And if I'm a little sinner, then I I need a little Jesus, and I need a little cross, And I can carry that cross around in my pocket, you know, and if I ever have a need, I can just pull it out and say, forgiven, I got my cross. You know, it's a little tiny cross. Jesus, Jesus, forgiven me. It's teeny tiny, but I do need him from time to time. I need a little Jesus. I need a little cross. I need a little grace. But basically, I'm good. I'm a little broken. So I can handle people with a little brokenness. But people who have major brokenness, major sin in their life, I can't really handle them because I can't relate, because I'm really not as bad as them. I'm not as broken. I'm actually pretty healthy. I've got it together, and I need a little Jesus. But when you see yourself as forgiven much, you will love much. When you remember who you are, you're, you're not just a sinner saved of a little sin. You're a sinner that was saved of an infinite debt, an infinite debt. You, you were forgiven so much. And what I have found as a Christian now who's been walking with Jesus since about 1987, no, back it up, 83. 
that sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy, yes, it means having my heart and character change and me to become more like Christ, but another component of becoming more righteous is understanding the depths of my own depravity right now. Understanding how still, fallen, broken I am, that part of the, the ways that I understand what it means to really be mature in Christ is to understand how much I still need him. And it's not to wallow in sin or to rejoice in sin, but to say, like, I've, you know, God has grown me in some areas, but there's so many areas in which I still have so much growth to go, grow. And that's why the Apostle Paul ends his ministry, doesn't begin his ministry. He ends his ministry by saying, I am literally the chief of sinners. He starts out by saying, I'm a really bad Christian, like in his early letters. And then he goes, like, I'm, a, I'm the worst of all the apostles. Like, so, but he ends his ministry by saying, I'm literally the worst sinner on the planet. <laughs> and we know that's not the truth, right? But Paul understood how much he needed Christ and the gospel and how that keeps him fresh in Christ to understand if I am broken, not just of a little sin, but of an infinite debt, then I have a massive love for God and I have a massive love for a broken world. And this changes everything, how you relate to people that are broken, that are sinful, that are far from your worldview, that are far from where you're coming from, that are far from the gospel, but it gives you a humility towards people to say, yes, I can relate to you because without Christ in my life, I am as far from the kingdom of God as anybody else. This changes everything. Friends, this changes everything. And I know I am a recovering Pharisee. And as a pastor, after I was ordained, after I had been ordained for almost a decade, that's when the gospel became fresh for me again. And I began to understand how much I need Jesus Christ. Well after I was an ordained pastor. I've been converted to the gospel a thousand times. <laughs> remember who you are. And remember who you are not. You're not God. <laughs> I've got one of the greatest bits of news for you that will transform your life as it relates to you sharing the good news with people. You're not God. And therefore, you can't save anyone. You don't have to bear the weight of responsibility of saving your neighbor, of saving your family member, of saving uh, the people that you work with. You can't do it. You can have the greatest apologetic. You can have read all the books. You can have the greatest theology, the greatest, uh, all the tools in your pocket. Like, yeah, well, if they say this, and I know this and that. Like, you, you can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God either. I don't know if you realize that. I've tried. Once you realize that you're unable to save people, though, you can go boldly into their lives and love them. And you pray and you witness, and you bear witness, and you loving, and you're patient, and you look for God to give you opportunities. You don't have to manipulate it. You look for the Lord to provide opportunities for you to tell them about the hope that you have within you. It's so freeing to know that you're not God. Next, you know this, but you really need to know this. People are people. They're not projects. And until... Until we get to the place where we quit feeling like, I need, okay, Pastor Scott's talking about sharing your faith in a broken world. I got to get out there and do this. 
Would you please see that these, are, these neighbors of yours, these folks that you work with, your, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your stu- fellow students, they're people. They're not projects, man. Right when I got out of college and then went to seminary and then Becky and I had just gotten married, we, we were like, we just bought our first house and the phone rang one day. It was back when you l- literally had a phone, right? So like I pick it up and, the, and the, on the other end was a guy I had gone to high school with. And I had not talked to him since high school. And I was so excited to hear his voice. And I'm talking. And oh my goodness, it's so amazing to hear you. And like, where, are you, where do you live? And we live in the same town and everything. And then about 10 minutes into the conversation, he brings up that he has started a new business. Well, he had not started a new business. He had incorporated himself into the largest multi-marketing business in the entire world. And he was one little cog in this huge machine of a business. And he wanted to share with me about the ways that he could get me involved in his new biz, brand new business. You know how I felt? And some of you may be in this group, so take note, please. <laughs> I felt like a project, not a person. And I realized he probably was excited to talk to me again. I legitimately think he was. But that was not his primary motivation. It was to get me in his business. I said, no, thank you. We did not get together. I did not have time for that. People can smell this from a million miles away. If people think you're using them as a project, or if like your real motive is to convince me to become a Christian versus you're just loving me as a person, and of course, as Christians, every single person we encounter, we want them to know Christ. One of my closest friends in the valley is LDS. Did not expect that to happen when I moved here, but it's true. We're fellow dads, fellow school. We love each other. I'd say he's one of my closest friends in the valley. And I've never, ever, ever once felt like he is treating me like a project. He knows, I'm, he knows everything about me. Like, we're close friends, really close friends. And he, he has never treated me like, I got to get him to be LDS. Would he like that? He would love that. <laughs> I mean, I would love, love to have him become a follower of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't agree on theology. He and I would probably, and yet, he has never sensed that he's a project on my end, and I've never sensed that he's a project on my end. But if I did, if I had an LDS friend and I got the sense like the only reason this person is really neighboring me is because they want me to join their church, I wouldn't want anything to do with that, would you? People are people. People are not projects. The next, next thing I want you to see is ask and listen. Ask and listen. Don't give your opinions about faith when no one's asking. I think, I think effectiveness actually is important. And by the way, again, I think God's in control of all this, so I don't have to manipulate it. But don't give your opinions about faith when no one's asking. People really like to be heard and listened to, and our actions speak much louder than our words. We, Christians, we talk too much and we listen too little when we're discussing religion, faith, and philosophy. Ask 
good questions. Listen to people. You can absolutely speak up and share your ideas too, but it's, what's beautiful is when you've asked so many good questions of people, tell me about your story. Did you grow up in church? What do you believe about things? Have you ever read the Bible? Any of that. They're going to eventually ask you the same. What about you? Did you grow up in church? I did. And then freely share your story. Talk with people, not to people. Talk with people, not to people. Madeline Leingle, I hope I'm saying that right, the novelist, she wrote Wrinkle in Time. She says this, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them the light that is so lovely that they want with all of their hearts to know the source of it. What I believe we need to do is live our lives in such a way as as God's light and his love and show people authentically that we're not necessarily righteous, but Christ is. Show him his goodness. We can show them our faults and our sins and readily admit them because Christ is the answer. I'm not the answer. And as we live our lives so authentically in front of them, we want them to say in their hearts, I may not be a Christian ever, and I'm, I'm definitely not yet, but if I were to become one, I could envision myself becoming like that person. That's the kind of Christian I would want to be. That's our desire, church. That's who we need to be, church. The kind of followers of Jesus that would like make people go, I may not share their faith, but if I did, it'd be like that person. Tell your story and speak the gospel. Next, tell your story and speak the gospel. Tell people your story, the grace of God and what he's done for your life, that you are a spiritual beggar, impoverished without any good news except in your own life, in your own unrighteousness. Like, this is the reality, but look what Christ has done for me. Don't turn the gospel into a law, and this happens so much, and, and I want to be careful not to like, give you so many rules about sharing your faith that you don't want to do it, but so often, instead, the answer is like, I, you know, I, I'm basically a good person, I follow Jesus, but instead, show them how much you need Jesus. Don't lay the law on them. Show them how much they need Christ. And, and of course, we talk, the discussion of sin comes up, but it's not your job to convict people of their sins. This is so freeing for me. I do this for a living, right? I stand up here and tell people about Jesus and the gospel and sin and repentance and you need to follow him and repent of your sins and be bad. I tell, that's what I do for a living. But if I thought it were up to me, I could never do this job. I would quit a long time ago. The Holy Spirit does that work. You don't have to convince people of their sin, by the way, for two reasons. One, most people already really know how sinful they are even if they don't categorically even agree with sin. We feel it in our bones how lost we are. One. Two, the Holy Spirit does that. He must lead us to repentance. We can't manipulate people into it. So we tell our story. We speak the gospel, not, not religion, not laws, not rules and regulations. We tell our story. So what are we to do? What is our strategy? What is New Valley going to do? We live in a broken, fallen world where people are lost and, and, and the hostile. People are hostile. I want, I want you to consider two things about our strategy. We have a strategy. One strategy is not going to work well probably even 10 years from now, but currently is working, at New Valley at least. 
people are still coming to faith by entering this body through invitation. They just are. A lot. That's quickly going to be less and less. Invite people to worship here. And we have seen people time and again, many of you even here this morning are not yet followers of Jesus, but you have found a warm home here. Friends, that it's still working. It's still working here. And we, we designed New Valley, we've equipped New Valley to be the kind of place where we want people who are skeptical to be able to enter any aspect of our church, small group, guys' nights, women's ministry, wherever they are, they should receive a warm welcome and have a safe place to have really hard questions asked and that they get to be challenged. It's not going to work long term, but God is still giving us that fruit. That's the first. But the second one is this. Our strategy is you. You're the strategy. How are we going to reach people who are far from Jesus? How are we going to reach people like my friend, one of my best friends who's LDS? Through you. How will our LDS friends know, come to know Christ if you don't know them? Your neighbors. How are we going to reach everyone? It doesn't really matter. I put a title to one group. Let's forget all the titles. Just people who are lost, that don't know Christ, far from God. You, you go to your work every day. You go into your house. You go into your neighborhood. You go to your school. You go to your pharmacy. You go to Fry's. You go wherever you go. You go there. You go to all these places. And God does this amazing thing when ordinary followers of Jesus show up in ordinary places, but with gospel intentionality are praying and looking for God to use them. It's amazing what God can do. You are the strategy. Friends, New Valley, we're called to love one another. It's a, we're a broken church. New Valley is a broken church. If this is your church, love this broken church. And love the church. Celebrate what God is doing through the church. And secondly, love the broken world as a broken person. In the name of Christ, let's pray. Father, Above all things, I ask that we would remember who we are in Jesus Christ, sons and daughters, the adopted children of God, loved, adopted, cleansed, welcomed, and help us to know the source of that reality, your amazing grace. And may that grace produce humility in us towards a broken world and a broken church. We ask in Jesus' good name, amen.